NWVUD and UD Information Technologies present Campus Voices, conversations with University of Delaware faculty, staff, and students about their teaching, research, service projects, and other interests. To introduce today's guest, here's your host, Richard Gordon, manager of the IT Communication Group at the University of Delaware. Thank you, Jason. And joining me today from the university's Center for Science, Ethics, and Public Policy are two professors. Tom Powers is the director of the center, and Mark Green is the research director at SEP, and they both have appointments in the philosophy department. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Thank you for having us. Now, the first question I've got for you is, you, you both have unusual academic backgrounds, if you will, that, that sort of have led you to this place where you are philosopher kings out in the world. <laughs> yes, I used to be a veterinary surgeon back in the day, but um, it's a great job. I don't disrecommend it to anyone, but I found myself doing philosophy studies in my spare time and and did a master's degree and then accidentally did a PhD and then switched out to the US. And here I am doing philosophy instead which I also recommend very highly. It's also <laughs> great fun. And Tom, you've done a lot of work. I've seen that some of your work has been published in the proceedings of the IEEE, and you've done things with electrical engineers. And Yeah, that's true. That's probably peculiar for a philosopher. Um, since around 1999, I've been teaching philosophy, but also teaching in computer engineering programs. And a lot of my publication is geared towards an audience that is interested in technology um, and also philosophy, but it is a it, it's a peculiar path to take. I started out as a fairly traditional philosopher. I you know, went to Germany and wrote a dissertation on Kant, and then sort of turned to the technology side. So um, it's it's a it's a good path. I don't know if I would recommend it to everybody, but um, it's worked for me. What are some of the research things that you guys have done? You, you've mentioned some of the things you've done with um, Tom with the machines and and. Yeah, so one of the questions that I struggle with um, is the place of technology, especially new technologies um, in the marketplace and in society and how they sort of clash with some of our received notions of privacy and autonomy um, and even responsibility for harms. So some of the things that um, are of interest to this you know, small group of philosophers and and uh, Researchers on technology include um, autonomous uh, warfare robots and drones and um, software and automobiles and safety-critical software and even stuff that runs your um, ABS braking system. So all of that is complicated, and it, um, it tends to have benefits, but sometimes the costs are hidden or sometimes the risks are hidden. So there is a, there's a place for looking at those technologies um, from an ethical standpoint. I've seen recent news stories at CNN and other websites about things like California legalizing driverless automobiles or the growth of drones and warfare. It's not just the U.S. now. Iran, Israel, England are all using them. Yeah, that's right. It seems like we've um, crossed that that threshold, and now we acknowledge that um, warfare is increasingly high-tech, and it um, really couldn't take place in the way it does now take place without uh, massive amounts of computation, and there are uh, errors built into that, just like you know your uh, typical word processing software is buggy. It could well be that your uh, 
your robot software is is buggy. So there are um, downsides to all of this, and it just it pays to be a little bit diligent about you know what we really expect from these things. And Mark, I know that you've used your veterinary background, it seems, because I see you teach a lot of classes and things like medical ethics and genetics, and and some of your publications have have been about you know. Whether or not people should be thinking about using genetic selection. Yeah, that's right. I mean, most of my teaching is one way or another bioethics and medical ethics related. My published research is a bit broader than that, but a lot of it does come down to questions about um, reproduction in particular. That's one of my core interests. Um, so, yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot in both teaching and in my published work. Well, it sounds to me like neither one of you are the kind of philosophers that sit in an ivory tower just thinking about things, are you? I mean, it really seems... I'm not sure if I've seen the ivory tower here on campus. I, <laughs> they must have misplaced it. Maybe it's lying flat. It's it's uh, it's horizontal instead of vertical. Could that be it? That may... oh, I like the ivory tower. It's a lovely place, but it's nice to get out from time to time. <laughs> well, I mean, it seems like you both are actually involved in, in, if you will, putting philosophy into action in the world. And I think that's sort of one of the ideas behind the Center for Science and Ethics and Public Policy, isn't it? Yeah, no, I, I think that's uh, absolutely right. Uh, I think many academic disciplines can sometimes be divorced from what's happening to the person on the street or divorced from what's going on in the marketplace and sometimes you know, not really aware of um, what's happening in society. So there's a place for philosophers to actually look at those uh, changes and to comment on them and maybe nudge in a way um, or fail to nudge people. Um, but also it's, it's just helpful to um, allow philosophers and non-philosophers to talk about these issues um, in a way that's fairly informed. And so that's what SEP tries to do, among other things, bring people together who are philosophers and who are not philosophers, scientists and humanists, people from the physical and natural sciences and the social sciences to talk about some of these developments. It seems that the, the the faculty who are there come from a broad variety of disciplines, don't they, Mark? The faculty involved with the SEP work, yeah. yes. Well, we have a research group in SEP, and there certainly is a broad range of disciplines there. There's a number of people from policy. We have people who come from fashion and apparel studies, other people in education, um, people from linguistics and cognitive science. And it's really interesting to see how they come together and um, really talk to each other about their fields. One of the sort of difficulties with interdisciplinary work sometimes is the own the jargon you have so it's really nice from my point of view to interact with people from other disciplines so that I can sort of do a self-check occasionally on when I'm getting overly jargony for a general audience and certainly as Tom was saying we do like to reach a general general audience though you know there's a lot of hard research behind philosophy stuff you still want to be able to where it's relevant make it accessible to a general audience. Tom what are some of the examples and when we mentioned the the driverless cars and the drones. What are some of the other examples of things that that um, people are concerned about? I saw, for example, that um, there's a, a blog post at your website about um, dermatology. Yeah, uh, an undergraduate student actually um, wrote that blog post, and that's part of a contest that we have that's ongoing for undergraduate students to submit a blog roughly about the topics that science, ethics, and public policy set uh, really covers. So it can be almost anything. That particular post was about the the overprescribing of antibiotics for dermatological conditions. And um, it was a it was a very interesting point of view. It's the 
idea behind blog posts is not to submit something that's publishable work, but just to get an argument or a point of view out there and then have some uh, somebody else perhaps react. So it's a it's a way to uh, you know get further the, a dialogue about yeah, get the conversation going exactly. Yeah. And antibiotic resistance pretty serious issue. Um, it, it almost seems lighthearted to think about prescribing antibiotics for dermatological conditions, but some of them could also be uh, life-threatening. So you don't, you don't immediately want to dismiss that um, kind of practice. But r- rather, I think the good thing is to uh, sort of shine a light on the practice and figure out whether that's where we want to be uh, deploying our antibiotic uh, ammo, as it were. What are some other examples of specific things that people at SEP UD's Center for Science and Ethics and Public Policy have discussed or done research in? Well, one of the recent projects we have going we is um, an, an education to look at how philosophy of science can inform science education. Um, one of my colleagues in the philosophy department, also in linguistics and cognitive science, Robin Andreasen, is involved with that, and Subita Daga in education. And so they're really looking to get the sort of theoretical basis in philosophy of science to inform science teaching. And this is interesting because, you know, it makes science more of a uh, intellectual enterprise than a series of facts you learn from quite early on in your science education. And that's a, a really nice way to think about things. I remember in high school, we did that with history fairly early on, and it really opened up a different way to think about a, an academic discipline, not just as a series of things you have to learn to pass tests, but as an ongoing dialogue in which people are still wrestling with problems and working out even how to think about the problems. So it's putting the, the scientific inquiry into context. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I think Mark's example is a good one, and one also which shows that the faculty in SEP may not all be philosophers, but they all have interests that are, roundly speaking, philosophical or foundational, or sometimes in the sciences you say methodological. So People come together from a bunch of different disciplines to discuss these things. It's not um, the, the kind of research that comes out of there probably doesn't fit squarely into any one discipline, but it's a nice way of thinking about interdisciplinary uh, activities to get people from a, several different disciplines together to talk about some of their methodological concerns or even clearing up a, a philosophical dispute in the field. We're talking today with Tom Powers, the director of University of Delaware Center for Science and Ethics and Public Policy, and Mark Green, the research director of the Center for SEP, if I may call it that. Both of them are also uh, philosophy professors here at UD. And we've been talking about a lot of examples and, and that kind of thing, but why don't you tell us, like, from a big picture point of view, I mean, what is it that UD is really hoping to accomplish with the Center for Science and Ethics and Public Policy? So uh, I'm not sure if I can speak for the entire university. This is what we think we we contribute to the university. Um, I already mentioned that we are engaged in interdisciplinary endeavors, and the SEPRG, a research group, is a way in which we bring faculty together to do new research. But there are also areas um, which are about science and technology and ethical choices that we make in undertakings like doing science or producing a a product or a technology that students can learn from. So one of the things we want to do is to um, create new classes. And and we've done that, Mark and I, along with our colleague Bill Ullman, teach a graduate course on research ethics. Uh, This is a funded program, originally funded by the National Science Foundation. And the, the program is called RAISE. The acronym stands for 
uh, responsibility and integrity in science and engineering. But it's a, it's a semester-long course in which we try to um, teach graduate students to teach other graduate students about research ethics, really about fabrication of data, falsification of data, plagiarism, conflict of interest, whistleblowing, topics like that. So it has a very uh, practical impact. We want students to learn about these problems and learn about the concepts before they ever become embroiled in some sort of controversy. So it's, it, has a, um, it has a prophylactic goal, if you will. I would just add, though, that um, what Tom's talking about, very important programs within the SEP program, but as director, he does a lot of work that's not sort of strictly part of a SEP program. He does a lot of t- spends a lot of his time interacting with other faculty and talking with them about how to include required ethics parts into their science grants, which are increasingly being required by funding agency. A lot of advice about how to include ethics in your teaching of a course and indeed sort of developing new courses. So there's a lot that he does that's not just the sort of here's another program that is important. It's a, a lot of the work is as director just reaching out and being available to talk to people about these ideas. I think it's interesting that a lot of the work you do seems to be funded by NSF. Yeah, that is, um, it's very good for us. And I, I am very glad that the National Science Foundation um, has supported several of the programs that we've um, engaged in, especially the research ethics program early on. That was our first grant. But we continue to um, play a role on grants, as Mark said, um, primarily from NSF, but we, um, we don't have any qualms about taking money from other people. Um, I think the, the impetus of ethics on campus or expanding ethics on campus in terms of education and research and service really started well before either of us came here, um, as far as I understand, started about 2001 when former provost Dan Rich got a bunch of faculty together and said, look, there's an opportunity to create more ethics courses, to um, be more competitive uh, in grants by writing ethics activities into grants and bringing focus to uh, to this campus on eth- ethical issues. So I think um, Dan Rich really does deserve a, a lot of credit for um, getting those faculty to focus on those issues. And then from that, um, a lot happened, of course, since 2001. But I think that that initiative really set the stage for what we now see, which is a, a full-blown uh, center for science, ethics, and public policy. Mark knows this. I mean, Tom and I have just met today as we're doing this interview, but Mark knows this. That I'm, I'm lucky enough to teach one of these ethics classes, yeah. the, the ethics class that's required of the computer science majors here at the university. Are there getting to be more and more classes like that? I mean, very specific or ethics classes that are designed for specific disciplines? Right. So uh, let me uh, mention one that's um, close, at least topically, to that course that you teach. Uh, There is now a new electrical engineering course, uh, which is called Ethics and Impacts of Engineering, and it's a requirement for the electrical engineering degree. Um, I teach an environmental ethics course, which is a part of the environmental studies program, and hopefully it will become part of a new minor that we're planning, a group of faculty on campus, um, under the direction of um, Adam, uh, Adam Rome and um, Kay Jenkins, are now trying to start up a minor called the Environmental Humanities Minor, and the Environmental Ethics course will be part of that. And, of course, as you mentioned, Mark's um, courses in, uh, that 
surround biomedical ethics are really a, a core part of addressing those very important issues in the biomedical and healthcare fields. Mark, what are some of the issues that you address in, in those classes that you teach? Um, well, I teach two classes, both of which I inherited when I came here, that are sort of the core of my teaching. They were um, medical ethics and ethical issues in healthcare. And what first struck me when I arrived at on campus is why the hell are there two classes with such similar titles and almost identical blurbs apart from some variation in the typos? And so I decided to make the medical ethics one focus on the sort of bedside issues, if you will, sort of individual questions about um, what is the kind of healthcare delivery you should have an option for, abortion, um, stem cell research, sports, uh, drugs in sports, those kinds of questions. And I decided to concentrate in the ethical issues in healthcare class on more systems issues. How should a healthcare system look if it's to be just? Um, and in both of those classes, though, what I try to stress is the philosophical obsession with argumentation. I don't care what students think. What I care about is why they think it. What are their reasons for that? So that's the kind of thing I stress. There was one more course that I, I failed to mention. It's a new course, uh, team taught by uh, myself and Ismat Shah, who's in um, physics and astronomy and material science and engineering. And this course is called Ethics and Nanoscience. So it's part of a nanomaterials minor. And that was, again, a course which um, in part came about through National Science Foundation grant funding. But it really uh, is an opportunity for students to look at some of the ethical issues, especially environmental ethical issues, that arise in the production of these new uh, technologies made from novel materials on the nanoscale. So that's, um, that's sort of a whiz-bang topic. I mean, nanotechnology for the last 10 years has been uh, funded to the hilt by the U.S. government, and there are uh, some products out there that we're starting to um, benefit from. There are medical applications. Um, you know, if you have your uh, your iPod on and you're listening to music, some of that uh, technology comes from nanomaterials. But there are also more mundane things like tennis balls that have a longer life and uh, stain resistant fabrics and things like that. So nanotechnology is, you know, one of these emerging technologies has a lot of benefits. At the same time, there's some things to uh, be a little bit wary about. That's interesting when you talk about even things like how long the tennis ball lasts or how long paint would last or those kinds of things. I mean, it's, it does raise all sorts of different kinds of issues that you know, a consumer might not think about. Right. Uh, sometimes we talk about these issues under the framework of, of life cycle. So there's, of course, the, the uh, manufacture of the, of the base materials themselves, and then they go into products. But then, as we know, most of these things eventually go into landfills. And what we want to know is what happens to these novel materials after they go into landfills. Do they break down? Do they pr uh, prove harmful to people either through breathing them if they're aerosolized or in the water, or are they um, subject to get into our food supply? So it's a pretty serious issue. At the same time, you don't want to cause unnecessary alarm because, as I mentioned, there are a lot of potential benefits to this technology, especially when it comes to new personalized medicine. We're talking with Tom Powers and Mark Green, both of them philosophy professors here at the University of Delaware, and Tom is the director of UD's Center for Science, Ethics, and Public Policy, and Mark is the research director. And I forgot to mention earlier on, but I'll just mention that if you're interested in learning more about the center, you can um, go to our show's website, 
www.udell.edu slash campus voices or the website for for sep is now sep.udell.edu that's sepp.udell.edu very good all right we have a few minutes left and one of the things i want to follow up on is something you were talking about mark about you know how you don't care so much what the students that you have in your classes believe as much as how they work to get to that to their conclusions and i'm curious what what do you feel ethics in the curriculum? What do you think ethics is contributing to the curriculum? Why is it important for students to learn ethical analysis? Well, there's a couple of little cliches out there. I forget who I should attribute this to, but some wise, I think it was A. Hausman once said, um, a moment's thought would have told him that a moment is a long time and thought is a painful process. So part of what I see my mission is really just to get students to actually do the thinking. A lot of ethical problems are really not that hard. There's a very steep part to the curve, which you can get up really quite high up on just by thinking about the problem. So what I try to do is get students to be able to go out into the wild and actually hear arguments out there. One of my favorite um, assignments that I give students is the bad argument assignment. What I do is get them to go out into the wild and try to find an argument out there as bad as they can possibly find, really, truly, egregiously horrible and then say what's wrong with it. And it's an interesting assignment because it turns out that it's, first of all, not all that trivial to spot an argument out there in the wild versus just silly opinions, right? There's plenty of crazy assertions out there which don't really amount to arguments in any interesting way. So the first task is actually to see where is somebody actually trying to give you an argument? And then having seen the argument, it's very easy sometimes to say, oh, come on, that must be absolutely crazy. And, and But then just to leave it at that, and never bother to say exactly why it's wrong, what the argumentative mistake is. So it's a good exercise just for tuning yourself in to a lot of the sort of silliness and noise that gets passed around as if it were reasons. So for example, one that sort of very commonly gets heard in bioethics is to state the obvious in a tone of outrage as if it were an argument. So for example, you might say, well, if you allow euthanasia, then doctors are going to be killing their patients. Well, yes, that's the point. Nobody has missed that on either side of the debate. So when you can spot that that is, you know, it sounds like an argument. It sounds like you're being given a reason if you just sort of hear the tone and the context, but don't really listen to what's being said. And hopefully at least one or two students a year come out of my classes being struck by that as, hang on a second, that's no an reason emotional was just appeal. given. Yeah. yeah, that's an emotional appeal. That's, yeah. not, that's not a reason. Right. It's nothing that should persuade anyone that doesn't already agree with you. And it's really just you know something to shout at if you already happen to agree. But an interesting debate is one where you give reasons to people who don't already agree with you. And you're not necessarily going to change their minds, but at least hopefully you'll get them to understand why you hold the views you do and maybe to take them seriously as views to be reasoned with and not just shouted at. The, the bad argument is not an endangered species by any means. And you, you see the same kind of thing in the climate change debate. A um, lot of bad arguments being foisted on a public that doesn't want to believe certain um, facts about what's going on with climate, and they don't want to take uh, they don't want to take action to sort of secure what they otherwise hold dear. You know, much as um, talked about lately about the American way of life. Well, what does that really mean? Driving around in the biggest gas guzzling car you can find uh, doesn't seem to be central to my way of being, but. Uh, again, if some people find it central to what they do or central to their lives, then they need to give reasons, publicly acceptable reasons, 
or why that should be um, set as a premium and, and not other things. For instance, the well-being of future generations. That's a good point. I think what people often forget about is who are the stakeholders in whatever the technology is that we're discussing? What are the implications for current and future people? That's right. A lot of this stuff will be around long after we're dead. Um, the example that I often give is the landmine. I mean, when they were designing landmines, certainly depending on which war, which theater you're talking about, there's overwhelming reasons to put them in the ground, right? Well, except for the fact that they persist and small children get blown up long after uh, hostilities have, have ceased. So that's a, a technology which um, you know, a lot of people wish we would not have deployed. Tom, coming up, you're going to be leading a group going to Genoa, Italy. That's true. Along with my colleague Ismat Shah, we're uh, offering a study abroad course in Genoa, Italy. It's going to consist of the environmental ethics class that I uh, mentioned earlier, uh, the team talk course in ethics and nanoscience, and uh, a course that Ismat teaches in the foundations of nanomaterials uh, so and material science and engineering. So it will be a, a hybrid offering. There'll be three courses, and students will then uh, be <clears throat> escorted over most of Italy to see examples of manufacturing and also to see examples of the way things go poorly in environment environmental protection. And so it'll be an opportunity for students to learn a little bit about these fields in a different context from Newark, Delaware. And Mark, what do you have coming up in the near future? I have a sabbatical coming up in the near future. So for all of 2013... So spanning two different academic years, I'll be um, being able to get up even later in the morning and spend my time thinking and writing and so what, forth. So I'm, I am looking forward to that. What are you planning to think and write about? Well, I've got a number of projects I'm working on. So one of the, the new ones, sort of new, really comes out of teaching ethical issues in healthcare, which, as I mentioned, is actually probably shouldn't say I mentioned it, right, in case you edit that bit out. I shall go back and do that again. Uh, so... Um, yeah, so one of the, the newer projects I'm doing, it's actually in a way not new because it relates to the ethical issues in healthcare class I teach, in which I focus on systems issues, is going to be going more deeply into the sort of international comparative figures between healthcare systems. So there are a few sort of headlines of which I'm aware from OECD figures, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, where consistently the United States comes out as spending far, far more than other countries on healthcare. And so as an Englishman, when I come to the United States, I'm often told, for example, well, you know, you may have universal healthcare, but you have really high taxes. Well, if you look at the numbers, no, actually, the UK's taxes for healthcare are lower than those of the US, not higher. And Canada is very similar. So there's a lot of myths like that in the um, healthcare system about the basic numbers how the US compares to other countries. So I'm interested in getting more deeply into those and what the assumptions behind those numbers are. So that's one of the things I'm going to be looking at. Um, and other stuff I've got, which, you know, is projects I continue to do, work on reproductive ethics, and that sort of thing. Well, Tom and Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much, Richard. We've been talking today with Tom Powers and Mark Green, philosophy professors who are two of the head honchos over at the University Center for Science, Ethics, and Public Policy. And for more information, you can go to their website, sepp.udel.edu, or go to our show's website, www.udel.edu, 
slash Campus Voices. Thanks for listening to Campus Voices, a collaboration between WVUD, the broadcast voice of the University of Delaware, and UD Information Technologies. The views expressed on this program are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official views or policies of WVUD, UD Information Technologies, or the University of Delaware. For more information about Campus Voices and to find archive copies of this and other episodes, visit our website. Using all lowercase letters, go to www.udel.edu slash campusvoices. We invite you to tune in every Thursday morning at 8.30 for Campus Voices on 91.3 FM, WVUD, and WVUD HD1, Newark, or online at wvud.org. Thank you.